Take your Bible, turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan... To whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let us ask God's blessing on his word. Our Father, this is your word, and this is your sermon. We do ask that you would speak through your spirit. We might not simply hear the product of my study, but rather that we would hear with the tones of heaven, that you would give life and light, and that you would work in us, that Christ might be glorified in all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with a name. F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer. Your historians are probably going through the mental world of action. They're heading, I don't don't know who F.B. Meyer is. That's exactly right. Most of you, uh, maybe none of you might know who F.B. Meyer is. F.B. Meyer was a preacher in London, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. 
F.B. Meyer was a brilliant preacher in London in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and he is a preacher that most of us have never, ever heard of. Because F.B. Meyer had that great difficulty of beginning his ministry and having a church that was robust and healthy and having a new young pastor move in the church right down the street from him by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You probably have heard that name. Spurgeon's maybe the greatest preacher in the English language, certainly one of, and drew crowds by the thousands. They had to constantly add to the church. It was crazy. And F.B. Meyer struggled with that. In fact, they actually have records of him going and standing out and watching all of the carriages pull up to Spurgeon's church as people constantly got out until the building was full and people had to be turned away. And standing there and, in essence, grieving with jealousy. Because F.B. Meyer was good. He was a great preacher. Brilliant pastor, healthy, robust church that never really grew. It stayed small. And he wrestled with jealousy for a large portion of his ministry. And that actually would have been rough enough to have Spurgeon there, except, well, Spurgeon dies early. He dies young. I think he was 57, I think, something like that. Which would have been kind of if you're F.B. Meyer, maybe that's your big break, right? Except on the other side of his church, right after Spurgeon dies, another young pastor would come in, a guy named G. Campbell Morgan, a name that maybe you haven't heard, not quite as famous as Spurgeon. He's the guy who pastors the church before Martin Lloyd-Jones and one of the genuine greats in English history. Again, a church of thousands. They couldn't fit them in the building, constantly having to expand Only something was different in terms of when Morgan came in. He had all of Meyer's support. So much so that they would meet regularly. Meyer prayed for him, prayed for him behind his back, prayed for him publicly in his pulpit in the church that was small with the massive church on the other side. Because halfway through his ministry, somebody confronted him about it and said, FB, you're sinning against the Lord with jealousy. You're longing for something that has not been given to you, and it's ruining you. And to his credit, he handled it correctly. He repented, he changed, and the Lord never gave him a big church. (laughs) But he gave him contentment with the process along the way. The theme for the sermon today is actually going to be that of jealousy. And most of us, and I'm going to say ungodly jealousy, careful in that and kind of couch it in that. And most of us are already going to say, well, surely I don't do that. I mean, I I was raised in a a fairly high class family. I understand that jealousy is tacky. Use a good southern word right there, right? Jealousy is tacky. It's petty. It's small minded. That's That's not something that we struggle with. And surely, who would I be jealous of? Once I've been pondering, okay, what do, we, what do we look at this passage? What are we going to see in this passage? What does this going to kind of mean for us? How are we going to understand and apply this? Thinking largely of how would a church that is a vibrant ministry that's, again, obviously growing, no seats in the house, 
It's freezing outside. We're running the air conditioning because our bodies warm the room too much. How are we going to struggle with this? Who would we be jealous of? And the answer that I'm going to pose for you and kind of hopefully we're going to walk through is the danger of being jealous of Jesus. Now, some of you already go, <laughs> nope, uh-uh, nope, this is not going to register with me. I'm not jealous of Jesus. I don't want to be jealous of Jesus. I don't want to do what he had to do. I don't want that. And what I would maybe suggest just from the very beginning is to open your mind and heart and examine yourself and honest, be honest about what's happening in your heart. How often are you jealous of his nature? And it doesn't look like, well, I wish I were divine. And I mean, we're not that, you know, unsophisticated. But we want to be great, don't we? I mean, we want to be mighty. We want to be powerful. I mean, think about all the little boys in the room. Superheroes appeal to all of them. I mean, it's amazing. From this tall, they love Spider-Man and they love Superman and they love all of the super because we love the idea of being great. We love the idea of being stronger than we are, of being more powerful than we are. Little girls, they tend to love princesses, to be more important than we are. We're jealous of his glory. We want to be praised. I mean, honestly, how many of us, we we secretly now, it's way deep down on the inside. We don't talk about this publicly. I mean, you never talk about this publicly. But all we want is just for somebody to give us a little bit of praise. You know, you did good. I'm proud of you. That work was hard. It turned out great. Well done. I put it slightly differently. How many of you in your workplace, all you want is for your employer to just give you those words and then throw in maybe, you know, 500 bucks on top of it? (laughs) You just desperately want that little bit of affirmation to say, look, you're great. You did a good job. You are glorious in some fashion. Maybe it's not quite that way. Maybe we're jealous of his office as, as the Messiah. We want to be special. We want to be unique. Now, I, I'm 37. I technically, yes, just made it into Gen X and not into the millennial generation. But uh, honestly, I mean, we're, we're looking at a country that has been taught that everyone is special and everyone is unique. We, we have that kind of part of our DNA right now. We want to be special. And this is particularly dangerous in the church. And a church that is ministry-minded like we are, and a church that is thriving and succeeding in growing and being healthy and being vibrant, because it suddenly makes us, or gives us a potential, to be jealous of Christ as the mediator. If, technical term is to have a Messiah complex. To think that we can actually help people. To confuse God's work with my work. To confuse God's power with my position. To confuse the artisan, the the worker, with the tool. To confuse the musician with the instrument. 
And I tell you, as this church grows and as we continue to be a, a healthy and vibrant and successful church, this is going to be a constant danger for us to begin to think of ourselves highly instead of Christ. And it's going to look certain ways as we're going to see certain people as being irreplaceable. Man, this church couldn't function without this person. No, that's absolutely not true. Because it's not about that person. It's like saying, I I couldn't build a house without this particular hammer. Well, that particular hammer breaks. I'm getting another hammer. It will be fine. I can build the house. Because it's about the builder and not the instruments. There's going to be a constant danger for us as we, as a healthy, growing, vibrant, robust church, to think more highly of us than we do of Christ. And then that's jealousy in a sort. It's us kind of inflating ourselves. It's being enamored with things that are supposed to be given to Christ. And John is going to walk us through beautifully, honestly, and emotionally the solution to this. Because this is actually the setting that's taking place. John has a healthy, robust, vibrant ministry. Remember, his ministry is so successful that in just a little bit, John actually has to clue us in on this, the, the Apostle John, uh, that his, he's going to be so famous that the king of the region is going to persecute him for him, and then he's eventually going to get beheaded because he's famous for being this magnificent preacher. He's actually recorded in Scripture as the godliest man of all time. He is like the pastor of all pastors. He's the last prophet He's the great prophet. He is the front runner of the Messiah. This guy is as good as it gets. And he's, after the Passover is over, Jesus and John both return out a little bit away into the countryside. They make sure they stay in a part where there is water because it's not like here where there's, you know, creeks or cricks everywhere. Uh, There's very limited access to water, so you have to make sure you stay in the right places. And so they go to the area where water would be plentiful and they begin to conduct their ministry. Um, Biblical theologians think that Jesus was there probably four to six months. He was there uh, at the end of the year. It would have been actually this time of year um, on the other side of the world. And while they're there, their ministries both begin and continue to thrive. John's is continuing, and Jesus begins to pick up steam. Until one day, and you have to think this would have been a little bit awkward, right? They're cousins, they're related, and then you kind of walk around the bend, you get ready to have baptisms, and you're looking at this body of water, and John is on one side baptizing people, and Jesus is on the other baptizing people. And we'd have been like, mm, this is a little strange, isn't it? What do we do with this? So much so that a discussion breaks out over purification. That's largely kind of what is your baptism doing, John? It's the nature of John's ministry. And eventually they come to John with the big question. Rabbi, John, teacher, um, look at that guy. That's really the heart of it. (laughs) Look at that guy. Everybody's going to him. It's not a question. It's a statement. But they're looking for his response. 
What do we do with this, John? We've been out here being baptized. You were repenting for sins. We're being purified, hopefully. And here's the other guy. You've already told us about him. Now his ministry's taking off. People are going to him. What do we do with his greatness? And that's actually the real heart of the question. What do we do with his greatness? Because if there were thousands around John and there were like four around Jesus, this question doesn't show up. No one asks it. This question shows up because the numbers are on Jesus' side and it's beginning to be noticeable. John, you were here first. What are you going to do with the new guy? And he's going to give us, kind of, in essence, three safeguards that have a whole bunch of subpoints connected to him, but three things in his response here to, to give us the solution to jealousy. It's a mental framework on how to approach life that's going to help us think correctly. The first response that he gives them is, if we're going to keep from being jealous, if we're going to thrive in our ministry in that way, we need to understand our own place in creation. Understand our own place in creation. And uh, he responds with two parts to this to help kind of understand what that means looks like. Verse 27. John answers and begins strong from the start. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That probably would have ended the entire conversation if they understood exactly what he meant. They are coming and saying, well, teacher, Jesus has all of these people now. And you don't have quite as many people now. In fact, actually, a lot of your guys have kind of bounced over to his ministry. What are you going to do about that? Because it's awkward and it's noticeable. And John's response is, my position, my ministry, my mission, all that is connected to me is given to me from heaven. It's not my position to question heaven. God has appointed this for me, is in essence his answer. God has appointed for me, John, to know the extent of his ministry, for his ministry to be pointing to Jesus, for him to be maybe one of the greatest pastors, prophets of all time, and to have his ministry finished with almost zero followers. That's the design for his ministry. I mean, think about it. If John's ministry is completely successful, all of his people leave to go to Jesus. That's how he knows he's done it perfectly correctly, is he has no followers at the end. Which would have been kind of odd to think about. But instead what he's saying, look, I understand my ministry is appointed to me from heaven. In fact, he continues further into the next verse and says, look, even you, you, you can bear witness to this. I've been teaching you this for a long time. I am not the Messiah. That position has been filled from heaven's side and not from mine. I'm not the guy in charge. I'm not the one running the show. I can only do what has been given to me. I have to understand my place in creation. This last week and this coming week, I'm working on papers for school. 
I'm writing one paper on Robert Louis Dabney, who is a Southern Presbyterian preacher uh, out of Virginia, Hampton, Sydney, Virginia, brilliant preacher. Now, Dabney had one moment in his uh, ministry, though, where in one year and for only one year, he experienced revival. He was in a small country church, Tinkling Springs Presbyterian Church. I suggest we don't change our name to that. Just for the record, I don't want that in the list. But in the middle of nowhere, out in the country of Virginia, nobody coming, one of the greatest minds in the entirety of America, he's absolutely brilliant, has revival come on him for one small year. His tiny church, smaller than this, has 30 people converted in one calendar year. Can you imagine the the, the emotional kind of turmoil of being the guy who has to follow that? Or the guy who came before, the pastor at the next church over, then when he would be called from that small church to the big college church in Hampton City, Virginia. And to think of all of the pressure, all of the jealousy, all of the temptation to try to manufacture that again. And Dabney's refreshing in that. He understood his place in creation. That's not his business to decide when people get saved. That's not his business to decide when revival would descend upon the church. It's not his business to manufacture conversions out of nothing. That's not his call. He understood his place inside creation. John doesn't stop there, though. That's your first kind of point. We're going to apply these at the end. To understand my place in creation, secondly, is to actively rejoice in the victories of Jesus. And this one, again, two sub-points. He uses an illustration first and then an application to actively rejoice in the victories of Jesus. I'm not the Christ, verse 28, but I have been sent before Him. And then, verse 29, he gives an illustration. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And he uses a wedding illustration. And the wedding illustration would be everybody shows up for the wedding. And the bride's there. And in this time, they would have had a friend that would have kind of run everything. There are no wedding planners then. You would have had a friend of the family, most likely a friend of the groom, who would have run the whole show. And do you think that friend is excited when it's just him and the bride hanging out? No, this is not when the party starts, is it? I mean, this is nice and all, but the party starts. Everybody gets excited when the bride and the groom are there together. That's the fun part is when everybody's there together. And think about it. Actually, we'll use a a modern-day wedding. The way our weddings happen now, you have the music start, and everybody's excited, and it's lovely. And then right there at the beginning, the groom and the groomsmen walk out, and no one cares. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to be brutally honest. No one cares. Literally, they don't even notice half of the time. No one cares. They're probably more concerned about what they're wearing than the people actually standing. No one cares. But the second the bride shows up, what happens? Suddenly, Everyone cares. And they usually care about one of two things. They either want to look back and look at the bride and go, oh, she's so lovely. Or they like to look at the groom and say, ha, 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 and look at his face as he just turns to goo up front. (laughs) 
It's the same kind of illustration. He said, look, nobody cares when it's just the one person standing up there. In American culture, when the bride shows up, that's when everybody gets excited. And he's using this illustration kind of in reverse. No one gets excited when it's just John and the Christians together. But when Jesus shows up, everyone gets excited. Notice what he's doing. He's highlighting the success, the victory, the importance of Christ. He's intentionally moving himself into the background. He's not important. He's not the focus. It's not about John, the greatest prophet in church history. It's not about him, the godliest man of all time. It's it's not about him. But it's interesting how he explains the joy of mine is now complete. Look, I'm excited. I'm rejoicing. I've had all of the time to spend with the church. I've had a chance to be with God's people. But I'm excited because now they're leaving me to go to the real solution. They're going to Christ. And so he echoes again, he must increase, but I must decrease He presents a contrast of size. In this equation, in this biblical righteous solution to jealousy, I need to be small and he needs to be big. Those are fun. I love the wedding illustration. But he doesn't even stop there. He continues on. Safeguard number three is to understand Christ's role in creation. So first is he he looked at himself and said, I need to be aware of what God has given me and equipped me. Secondly is I need to celebrate and rejoice in Christ's victories because his victories are my victories. But third is I'm going to look to Christ and see what his actual function in creation is. And we have three sub points here. First, he, he comes from, I'm sorry, he who comes from above is above all. He who speaks of the earth belongs to the earth, speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and what he has heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He, he's again presenting a contrast. John's saying, look, my ministry is an earthly ministry. I'm telling you how to repent for sins. I'm telling you about your sins. I'm telling you to get baptized as a sign for sorrow for your sin. But at the end of the day, I can only tell you about what I know. And the only thing I can tell you about what I know is kind of, in essence, what I've seen. It's connected to the earthly realm. But Jesus does something different. When he shows up, he's not showing up from the earthly realm. His timeline doesn't go ministry, well, going backwards, well, for you, going backwards, ministry, childhood, you know, birth in the womb, and then mind of God before that. His timeline actually goes way further back. It actually goes back before timeline started, where it's ministry of Christ, childhood of Christ, virgin birth, womb, conception by the Holy Spirit and Virgin Mary, and then prior to that, it's existence as part of the Godhead going back to the beginning of the timeline where he actually created, he was the agent of creation. He he can speak of things that John can't speak of because John has existed only on the earthly plane, so to speak. John's existence was, he was an idea in the mind of God, and then the Lord made him in the womb. 
joining husband and wife together. A couple of cells become a whole bunch of cells. Jesus, that's not true, though. Because he doesn't go from the mind of God. He is God. And he's not stuck simply into the womb because he's existed from before the foundation of the world. And so when he comes to conduct his ministry, John's just telling him about his experience and what God has told him. Jesus is telling him what he's witnessed in heaven. He's bringing a different caliber of truth because he is from glory himself. He bears witness to what he has seen and what he has heard. And it's not like anything we've seen or heard. Secondly, as if, again, that kind of weren't enough, he, he, he's seen and experienced things that we haven't because he is God and he is from heaven. Verse 34, his qualification for ministry is totally different than mine. I have the spirit of God in me. John is saying, I have the spirit of God in me. Obviously, that's clear. Uh, Jesus has the spirit of God in him, but it's in very different quantities. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Why? Because God gives the Spirit to him without measure. Now, I have the Holy Spirit within me, obviously. Hopefully, I'm preaching to you. You Hopefully, you know happening. Jesus had it in a different way. He has the Spirit residing within him in an immeasurable, innumerable, unquantifiable fashion. He is fully filled with the Holy Spirit so that his ministry is blessed in a way in which no one else's is because everyone else that ministers, that is God's person, even has a limited amount of the Spirit and the Spirit's power and the Spirit's involvement and the Spirit's influence. Not with Jesus. He's governed perfectly by his Father, governed perfectly by the Spirit because they mutually indwell each other. He's part of the Trinity, The Father indwells the Son, the Spirit indwells the Son, the Son indwells the Father and the Spirit. He's part of the Trinity, and I I can't fully explain to you what all of that means, but it means that he experiences the Spirit in a way that none of us ever do, because he's full of it. He's full of the Spirit. And again, if that weren't even enough, he continues with his explanation of Trinitarian theology. This is fantastic, by the way, just in case you hadn't picked up on it. John the Baptist already understands the Trinity in some fashion. Because he's explicitly saying that Jesus is God, he has the Spirit of God, and he has a special relationship with the Father, but it is one God. He's explaining Trinitarian theology. Just thought I'd highlight that for you. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand, and then explains the nature of salvation. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who doesn't, doesn't. This Jesus has a relationship with God the Father in a way that no one else ever has. He's unique. His ministry is totally different. You think about it. What do you know of God? Kind of be serious about that. I don't mean that as a silly question. What do you know of God? 
And you could probably, all of you, write me an essay of some kind telling the things that you know about God. It may be a short essay, it may be a very long essay, but you could write me an essay. And if we wanted to trace back where you got all of those things from, it would most likely come from either those are things that my parents taught me or things that my church taught me. And if you traced them back, eventually they would come back to this book. Or they would come up to things that made, were made up that are just flat out wrong. One of the two. Jesus doesn't have to do that because he is experienced it firsthand. He's coming from the Father's presence. And so his ministry is filled with an authority and a command and an information level that no one else's is because he is from heaven. He's unique. Now... These three things become incredibly important for the church. It's incredibly important for John. It's keeping his head screwed on straight. He's teaching it to his disciples so their heads stay screwed on straight. I would therefore suggest that we need to understand them so that our heads stay screwed on straight. And it's for this reason Again, as we are a growing church and we are thriving and the Lord is very gracious to us and it is a beautiful time to be at Christ Ridge. The devil is very cheeky. And he is very, very clever. And if he cannot pull you in one direction, he will push you in the other. And the temptation is going to look something like this. He's going to pull you to believe that it's not a good church or it's not a healthy church or things I don't like about it or I'm going to get grumpy about XYZ or I'm going to be angry about XYZ or I'll be upset about XYZ. I'm just going to rage and be a nah. And he's going to tempt you into that regard. And if you don't fall for that, you're going to say, well, no, I love my church. My church is a great church. And he's going to try to push you into that other thing to say, my church is the church. It's the church that does it right, and it's filled with the people, and it, it, it becomes this particular, elevated, divinely kind of sanctioned best thing. And you see, what we've done is, one is we've taken a negative view of the church that's unholy and replaced it with a high view of the church that's also unholy. Because in both cases, it's not understanding this is Christ's church doesn't belong to us it's his and the glory shouldn't come to us I'll be just a little bit of a grumpy Gus for a second I know it's kind of shocking to you but had this been today, John would have been not he would not have been invited to any of the major you know kind of you know church planting circuits. Nobody would have involved him in the larger church, how to grow a church type of conversation. He wouldn't have been involved in any kind of the national ministries because, well, his ministry is not thriving. (laughs) All his people keep leaving and going to another guy named Jesus. And that's absolutely the point. Instead, in place of being captivated with results or our own excellencies or even our own deficiencies, the challenge that I'm going to present to you is this, as we grow together as a body, might we work, this is the goal, might we work, all of us together, to have a really high view of Jesus. And the way that we have a really high view of Jesus 
is by understanding my place in the story, by rejoicing in Jesus' successes, and seeing what his function inside creation is. Basically, understanding my job, understanding his victory, and understanding his job. If we can do those three things, we're going to have a high view of Jesus together. And what do you think is going to happen if we have a high view of Jesus together? Well, the answer is we're going to have a whole lot of fun. Because it's not going to be about you and it's not going to be about me. We will release each other from pressure and obligations and we will find freedom in celebrating Christ. And I can really honestly offer you that is the best thing you'll find. That's why that's how the angels are presented in heaven. Celebrating, rejoicing, finding glory in Jesus. And we do that now. So that when our time is up and we are called home, we may do the same thing on the other side. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that we don't live forever. You have appointed our days and we know there will be a day in which it's up. We do ask that you would prepare us for that day by how we live this day. Shape us more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, give us contentment with Christ and give us rejoicing in his victory. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.